From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I am very pleased to welcome to the 1130 Studios, the banker to the world, Bill Rhodes, President and Chief Executive Officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, also author of a book, Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance, with a foreword by Paul Volker. Volker. Uh, Bill, I, I would love to get started with the big question about China and North Korea right now in markets. Uh, there is a perception that in general, traders are underestimating the degree of risk with respect to uh, North Korea, the prospect of a conflict there, as well as with China, its response to that, as well as its ability to rein in its own uh, situation with uh, an inflated credit market. From your perspective, how dire is this situation that's sort of developing uh, in the region? And uh, what's the what's the best path forward here? Well, I think it's the biggest single problem we face in the world today. Uh, and the only one that really can, can help us solve this uh, is China. And China is right on the cusp of the biggest... Uh, uh, conference, the biggest political event in the last five years, which is their 19th Party Congress, which begins on the 18th of October, because uh, the president of China, Xi Jinping, who is the strongest leader of China since Deng Xiaoping, uh, is uh, planning to make a number of announcements, including who is going to be on the Politburo, the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which runs the country. And there's a lot of speculation that uh, he may make some changes there, even to the premiership of Li Kaohchung, not clear. There are rumors to that effect. And the person that's closest to him is Wan Shishan, who I know well from over the years, uh, who is now leading the anti-corruption campaign. And uh, people are watching that very closely. So Xi Jinping does not want any problems to disturb this. So he is very unhappy with what Kim Jong-un is doing in Korea because this is making it very difficult for China, uh, because people are leaning on China, the, mostly the United States and President Trump, to do something about stopping Kim Jong-un from con uh, continuing to conduct nuclear tests and uh, ballistic missile tests, because what he wants to do is to marry a, uh, the ballistic missile uh, with a nuclear warhead and threaten the United States, Japan, whatever. And so the question is, how do you stop him? And in my mind, the sanctions that have been agreed upon at the United Nations 
are helpful, but they're not a solution, and they take time. We know that from what happened in Iran, South Africa. They don't happen overnight. So what is necessary and what can stop Kim Jong-un from this and bring him to the table to negotiate, which is what we would like to do, is to cut off all his oil and gas supplies. Because the primary user of oil and gas in North Korea are the armed forces. And I think if we cut, if China cuts off, which is gives them 80 to 90 percent of their oil and gas, uh, at any particular moment, they will come to the table within a couple of weeks. The only other oil and gas they're getting is from Russia, maybe 10 percent through brokers uh, in Southeast Asia. Other than that, I do not think that the banking, uh, <clears throat> you know, the banking measures taken uh, on sanctions or any of the others are going to work. I think the only thing that will work is to cut off the oil supplies, and China is the key to doing that. Will they do that? I think that if we don't badger them too much and, you know, do quiet diplomacy with them. I think, uh, you know, all these statements going back and forth are not helpful. I think some quiet diplomacy will do it because Xi Jinping does not want his great moment of glory to be affected by what's going on by Kim Jong-un. I've been with him at one occasion four or five years ago when he made it very plain to me that, and the Chinese think this in general, that Kim Jong-un is a pain in the neck. But the reason they haven't intervened and done anything earlier is they do not want American influence on the Yalu. That's why, uh, you know, the Chinese invaded North Korea to support uh, the uh, the then government of Kim Il-sung was because we had we had sent troops in the Korean War right to the Yalu River. It was one of MacArthur's mistakes. He underestimated the Chinese would go in. And the other thing is, if the regime collapses overnight, they're concerned about all the refugees that may go into Manchuria, northern China. But the Chinese do not like Kim Jong-un. They think he's difficult. He's causing a problem. And particularly at this great moment of importance for Xi Jinping. That's why he's gone along with the earlier sanctions. But the only one that'll bring uh, Kim Jong-un to the table is to cut off all oil and gas supplies to the country. And that will completely destabilize the military because they can't function without oil and gas. We're speaking with Bill Rhodes. He is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. And Bill, I want to turn your attention now to uh, the Caribbean and Venezuela and Puerto Rico, because I know that you started your distinguished career at Citibank in Venezuela. You know the Caribbean region very well. Uh, you became vice chairman of, of Citicorp. What can you tell us about the region as a result of these hurricanes and specifically what is necessary or what is possible, rather, to fix the horrendous and catastrophic conditions that currently exist, not only in Puerto Rico, but in many of these yeah, Well, I nations. lived in Jamaica for a while also, so I've I been through it. But I think the situation in Puerto Rico is, is particularly dire. You have to remember that this is a, an island or country, because it's part of the United States, uh, that uh, is basically in bankruptcy. That's a starter. When you take a look at Florida and, and, and Texas, they have booming economies. Uh, second of all, they're isolated because they're an island. So you can't take the railroads down like you were even in Katrina or, or, you know, or Texas or, or Florida. Everything has to be flown in or sent in by ship. Uh, they also have had a terrible Zika 
epidemic there. And of course, with all this water laying down, the mosquitoes are going to go wild. A lot of people are concerned about cholera. I think it is a dire situation. I think to try and compare it to the earlier hurricanes is a big mistake. Uh, and we have to move fast, very fast there, or I think it's going to be a complete debacle. In addition to all of this, some of the leading talent of Puerto Rico has migrated to Florida in the last seven or eight years because of the dire economic situation. You have 400,000 uh, uh, Puerto Ricans living in Florida, most who have come in the last decade. And what are they? Teachers, uh, doctors, lawyers, architects. They're the cream of the crop that have left. And so, uh, you know, the island's been denuded of, of, all of, these, of all of this expertise. And so I think that we, what we need to do is put a czar down there so like we did the general in, in uh, you know, in, in New Orleans to make sure that the aid gets there and it gets there quickly. Uh, who would you recommend to do that? And what's the likelihood that we get a person who then becomes responsible for making sure that these plans are carried out and that people get the help they well, need? Well, see, the problem, you have a governor, but the problem with the governor is he doesn't control what's going in. All he can do is control the island. So you need someone who's there for the supplies can do it. We should have learned that with Haiti. You got to, you know, Bush may have screwed up at the beginning uh, in New Orleans, but at least he put in a three-star general got the thing moving. Well, I feel like you're talking about the flight of talent, and there are about three and a half million people who currently live on the island. The po population has been shrinking rapidly. Yes. Uh, how much more do you expect the population to shrink in light of this humanitarian disaster, and how will that affect the current negotiations of over the uh, $74 billion of debt? Yeah, the, the latest census down there says 3.4 uh, million. I think it's less than that because they're not taking into account the number of people who have already left, gone to Florida, you know, the talent pool, I said. So uh, I think that you're going to have additional people leave. And you have all these small uh, towns that are all through the mountains that are, that are cut off. Uh, I've been talking to people down there, and uh, really it's, it's terrible. The hospitals uh, don't have electricity to function. Uh, and so we have to make a much more massive effort, I think, than we've ever had to before in any of these hurricanes because of the situation of the island. It would be great if they were a booming economy uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they had been able to plan for this, etc. So I think it's a very dire situation, and I think everything uh, that can be done uh, on a federal level by the United States but also on a, on, on a private level uh, of companies that operate there do whatever – uh, because uh, people have to remember, these are United States citizens. Their, their soldiers fought in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. And, you know, some of them also fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan. So we owe it to these people. And it's not like some far-off place, you know. And, and sometimes I get upset with some members of the press, obviously not Bloomberg, because you know the importance of this, but others— who kind of don't make a big thing of this. They say, well, it's just another hurricane and, you know, that's some island off there and they're not a state and all of this, which is one of the ultimate solutions. I think statehood at some point in time has to come there so they can basically integrate themselves more and get more in, in, in you know, in, in the way of help that the states are, are, are able to get. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, Hopefully, these issues will be forced. Hopefully, we will do what's necessary here because otherwise, you know, when we talk about all of these problems around the world and stuff, we got to think that we have a tremendous problem on our front door.
with Puerto Rico. I was going to say, what, what about, would, would Jeb Bush, do you think, would he be a good person to lead the reconstruction and revitalization of, of Puerto Rico? I mean, former governor of Florida. Speaks fluent Spanish. I mean, uh, yeah, you need somebody like that who's get, who get down there. I, I had mentioned a military man just because we had that in, in uh, New Orleans. But someone who can mobilize the administration and mobilize the whole government on the federal level, but also, you know, work closely with the governor on domestic side and also get the private sector, you know, to be involved uh, there. Yeah. I, I think it's a critical must. And hopefully when the president gets down there, He's going to see this. But, you know, time is passing. Bill Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us. Really a pleasure to hear your thoughts. Uh, Very insightful. Bill Rhodes is president and chief executive officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, also author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. As the Federal Reserve talks about reducing its balance sheet and as people look around markets, some are getting increasingly concerned about financial stability, saying that all of the extra liquidity in markets set it up for a massive fall. Here to weigh in on that is Sheila Baer, former chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, Also, currently, uh, she is the president of Washington College, and she joins us from our Washington, D.C. studio. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to get your take on the state of financial stability right now and how concerned you are about the excessive liquidity and what can be done about that? Well, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's a global problem. I mean, uh, financial assets, uh, I think, are about 330 percent now of global GDP. <laughs> so there's a lot of stocks and bonds out there, uh, many multiples of what real the real economy would represent. And it is destabilizing. It's looking for return. It's looking for uh, a place to invest. And uh, that creates asset bubbles. Uh, and uh, the very low interest rates also create, obviously, incentives to to borrow and take on a lot of leverage. That's one of the reasons why we have so many uh, financial assets now. So it's the global economy really is a wash in investment dollars, uh, far uh, greater than uh, the opportunity for real economic investments. And that's why I, I'm, I'm somewhat bemused by this uh, tax reform, I think I hope it's tax reform, uh, debate uh, because uh, the suggestion that we need to incentivize even more investment dollars by giving investor tax breaks is uh, something that uh, I really just think is, is counterintuitive given, uh, as you say, we're awash in liquidity right now already. Well, maybe you could just uh, give us your thoughts on at least the specifics as we know them, that the rate on corporations would be set at 20 percent. That's down from the current 35 percent and that corporations would be allowed to immediately write off their capital spending for at least five years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think there is some basis uh, in terms of the competitiveness of doing the business in the U.S. Uh, Our corporate rates are are, uh, not competitive. And I think there's bipartisan support for that. So that doesn't bother me so much. What really does bother me is the discussion of reducing the pass-through rate uh, to 25%. That would be of of huge – well, we haven't seen the details, but that would be of huge benefit uh, to private equity funds and hedge funds. Which have already, uh, you know, really uh, been able to cash in in uh, this uh, so-called recovery that's been heavily driven by monetary policy, which has made it very cheap for them uh, to borrow and invest. Uh, it's also because safe assets return uh, provide such a low return. 
a lot of uh, people and and funds have uh, endowment, college endowments, pensions, what have you, have piled into alternative investments, the, the kind that PE funds and hedge funds uh, offer, uh, which has also uh, benefited them. So this idea that somehow we need to give them more breaks, uh, I don't, <laughs> I really don't understand that. And uh, to the extent we're talking about, you know, I, I think people are saying, well, we don't want to give more tax breaks to the rich, but the rich seem to be defined as wage earners, uh, not those who make their money from investment income. And that's really where uh, the super wealthy uh, reside, that that top 0.001% that's done so well in this moribund recovery uh, is, is, is in that sweet spot. And to, to give them this idea, you know, reducing the pass-through rate is going to benefit small businesses. Yes, there will be some small businesses that benefit, and we haven't seen the numbers yet, but my guess is the lion's share of the benefit will go to, to hedge funds and PE funds, and that's so, just counterintuitive. So, Sheila, from, from what it sounds like to me, you don't think that any kind of tax reform or tax plan that's currently being proposed will substantially boost economic growth in a way that will help the entire economy? Well, I, I think I think there's an argument for lowering the corporate rate. We need to pay for it. Uh, we are not overtaxed as a country. I get actually the percentage of uh, of taxes uh, as a percent, you know, all in federal, state, local taxes, a percentage of GDP is actually pretty low uh, compared to other developed countries. The problem here is the distribution and uh, and uh, the, the you know the highly inefficient uh, favoritism and tax breaks and loopholes. That the code uh, provides. So I think anything should be revenue neutral. I think taking the top rate down, which typically for corporations, which typically is paid by the smaller companies, they don't have the, you know, the ability to move stuff overseas or or have uh, armies of tax lawyers to write special breaks for them in the tax code. That makes sense, but you should broaden the base uh, by paying for it. And, and I, yeah, I absolutely think that makes sense. Going to a territorial system makes sense. The tax code, the corporate code, does give affirmative obligations to move uh, to move business and reap income overseas. So going to a territorial system, getting the top rate down to be more competitive and finding a way to pay for that through broadening the brace, I think that could help the economy. It won't, it won't take it up to 6%, probably wouldn't even take it up to 3%, but it certainly uh, could help. And then a, middle, a true middle-class tax cut would make a lot of sense. Again, there's so much investment dollars, so many investment dollars sloshing around already. The problem's on the demand side. This hasn't trickled down. Middle-income and lower-income families, wage growth has been very sluggish. And the bottom tier, they're still losing ground. You see that particularly uh, with minority families. And, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do, but it's also the economically smart thing to do because that's, you know, they spend their income. And they've been struggling, and that hurts the broader economy, too. So providing real relief and additional spending power for the true middle class and lower middle class makes a lot of sense. But giving more tax breaks to very wealthy people that are already paying low rates already through carried interest or what have you just makes no sense at all. Thanks very much. Sheila Baer is the former chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Well, if you're an investor in Bombardier, the uh, Canadian maker of aircraft and trains, you're having a very bad day because the stock is down more than 8.5%. It opened down more than 16%. And this has to do with its C-Series jet and a tariff of 220% that the United States has leveled against Bombardier to sell those planes into the United States. Here to tell us more is Andrew Mayeda. He's our Bloomberg trade reporter. He joins us from Washington. And joining us from Edinburgh, Scotland, is George Ferguson. He's our senior aerospace, defense, and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Andrew, let's begin with you. If you could just lay out exactly what happened and why. Sure. So Boeing brought a complaint in the U.S. against Bombardier on two fronts. Uh, Basically, they alleged that Bombardier has been receiving unfair government uh, subsidies for years from the Canadian government, from the Quebec government, and also that uh, they've been trying to sell their C-Series uh, small passenger jet into the U.S. Uh, at uh, less than uh, fair market value. And so this was the first ruling uh, by the Commerce Department. It's preliminary. As you said, uh, it's levied at a rate of 220%. Uh, customs will, will begin to collect those. Um, the, the final uh, ruling will probably come from uh, the International Trade Commission next year when it determines uh, how much harm uh, Boeing suffered. So, George, uh, come on in here. We see that Bombardier shares are down massively today, nearly 10 percent. How uh, long lasting could this potential hit be for Bombardier? Uh, so I think it could last uh, quite a while. So the, the, I think the challenge here really is that uh, Delta was a good portion of the order book, and I think a very important order, uh, because along with Lufthansa, there's two uh, large, well-respected airlines operating the airplane. I think given this ruling, I think it's going to be hard to sell to any other U.S. airlines. I think it's going to be hard to deliver to Delta and pay the pay the duty. Um, and I think that really puts a big portion of the order book in question here. Uh, so I think without Bombardier bringing more orders to the table in the, in the near term, I think it's going to hurt the, hurt the stocks significantly here. George, that's the 75 jet order for Delta, right? Yeah, they have a 75 order with a 50 option. Uh, you know, so so they could be up to 125. That's 75 of about 350 orders. Uh, but there's other challenges in the order book as well that we could talk to, but uh, maybe not enough time in this call. Well, I, well, I was just going to go on and say that, you know, it's not only workers in Canada that may suffer as a result of this. Bombardier has a plant in Northern Ireland, correct? They do. They do. You know, the thing is, though, if, I think if we start getting into the ripple ramifications here, you're going to find that Boeing has plenty of plants around the world, and there are definitely suppliers in the U.K., uh, that they could point to as well to say there, there'd be a ripple effect on them. So I, I think that that's not going to go as far uh, as Bombardier may may uh, may want. Canada probably has more pull given their you know they purchase defense U.S. defense equipment as well. So the Canadian discussion might be a little bit better, but I think the global global uh, parts uh, supply stream is not going to help them that much here. Andrew, how long has uh, this action by the U.S. Commerce Department been in the works, uh, and, and was this expected? Yeah, they brought the complaint uh, in April, and I would say that this is uh, this was expected. Generally speaking, 
when the International Trade Commission finds uh, on a preliminary basis that a company uh, probably suffered injury, uh, Commerce usually just applies a formula to determine what the preliminary duties are going to be. Again, the key decision is going to come uh, next year when the International Trade Commission decides whether Boeing was really injured here. Uh, and, you know, they're going to weigh Bombardier's argument. Bombardier's argument is that uh, Boeing wasn't even really competing for these, for these, uh, for this, this, uh, this Delta order. They're saying that, you know, Boeing kind of de facto exited that segment. So how could they have suffered harm? So well, here's my question. I mean, when, just on the surface, it seems like this is connected or will be connected to some of the NAFTA renegotiations and just the ongoing uh, tension between the U.S. and Canada and the trade partnership there. Is that a misreading of this? No, I think that that's bang on. Actually, you mentioned that I was in D.C. I'm actually in Ottawa at the NAFTA talks now. So this is kind of landing like a grenade in the middle of the talks. And, uh, you know, as George alluded to, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has threatened not to buy Boeing C, uh, CF-18s. Uh, if 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 it doesn't drop the Bombardier case, so I mean we've talked a little bit about what a what a trade war looks like. I mean this is kind of what a low level trade war looks like. You know, company brings a a complaint in a in an established uh, forum, and then you know the politicians come under a lot of pressure. Like Pr- Prime Minister yeah. Trudeau is going to be under a lot of pressure right now to deliver something on Bombardier. George, in 10 seconds, do you agree that this is what a low-grade trade war looks like? Sure. I think uh, it's right where we're at. Andrew Maeda, thank you so much for joining us. He's a trade reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, Also, George Ferguson, senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Definitely a fascinating issue and uh, a salvo opened up uh, amidst the ongoing NAFTA discussions. This will not be received particularly well uh, by the Canadians, certainly, and uh, we will wait for a response there. Well, Nike shares are down nearly 4% today after earnings that were highly disappointing to to investors pretty broadly. To get more details on why they were so disappointing is Matt Townsend. He's a global business reporter for Bloomberg News and joins us in our 1130 studios. Matt, uh, so let's just talk about what the problem here is as Nike laid out. The problem is the United States of America. Uh, Nike's biggest market. Preach, mar- preach, Matt. <laughs> Nike's biggest market um, if they're not growing sales in the U.S., they're not basically growing overall, and sales fell 3% in North America, which is mostly the U.S. They said next quarter, um, sales likely to fall again in the U.S. or North America. So if you're a Nike investor, yes, overseas, Asia is growing pretty well, but if you don't got the home country growing, you're, it's not, uh, you know, it's a struggle to invest in them at this point. Is someone taking share from Nike? Of course, yeah. It's, it's you know, Adidas. Uh, for the past two years, really, has just been growing market share. Uh, is that all the strength of all of their retro? Uh, uh, lots of re- the retro is really strong. Because this again, is not just athletic wear anymore. I mean, right. this is, you know, it's casual wear 24-7. Yeah, I mean, sneakers are a fashion sort of staple nowadays. People wear them to work. So, you know, this idea that 
sneakers are just for people doing sports. That's not true. And yeah, so it's the retro stuff, but it's also, you know, they've had this great success with a, a brand called Boost, which has gone into many different forms. Um, you know, Kanye West has a big Boost part of his business with um, Adidas. And they're just, they're, if, there's a, if there's a war over coolness, Adidas is winning it right now, which is kind of surprising because Nike had that mantle for so long. Well, and it was because of the uh, Air Jordans, right? I mean, that was one big part of it. And- Air, Air Jordans, but even, even you know, some of their running shoes were, were immensely popular. It's just a regular shoe. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty striking. I mean, Nike did not grow sales last quarter. They were flat. And they're basically saying, we hope to re- revive growth in the second half. And when invest- investors and analysts asked them about this yesterday on their call, they basically just said, the innovation pipeline. It's great. Trust us. The things that are coming are great. Trust. So, trust. So, trust. That's the strategy. I mean, it's basically well, you have to buy into the executives and their confidence. And again, Nike and all sort of their public interactions are very confident still in the business. So you know, we'll see. The second well, half is going to be big. I, you know, you, you mentioned Adidas, or as uh, Matt Miller of Bloomberg News would say, Adidas. Adidas. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's sort of under uh, some pretty heavy scrutiny right now just because the uh, yes. U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern right. District of New York went after the NCAA as well as Adidas saying you guys colluded to basically bribe coaches and schools uh, to use our products. I mean, could this potentially eat into Adidas's appeal and uh, and frankly, their bottom line? Potentially, right now, uh, analysts are not putting too much weight into it. Um, you know, there's been tons of scandals in college sports involving uh, brands that you know, and who the, the, the effect on the bottom line was pretty minimal. Um, but again, in this investigation, there's definitely going to be more shoes to drop. Probably more schools. So to speak. Well done. Yeah. That was good. That was good. <laughs> more, I like the way you did that. Understated. Too. More yeah. schools. You know, the big question is. Do eventually the other brands get pulled into this? Because, you know, Adidas was not the biggest player in signing uh, American basketball players to contracts. That's by far Nike is the biggest. Can you tell me about the, uh, the the possibility that Nike would actually buy something else? I mean, is, is it possible? Because, I mean, you've got a lot of competition at the high end. You've got a lot of competition in the low end. Nike has the whole customizable uh, yeah. sort of franchise. But uh, why don't they go out and buy someone? I mean, you know, you look at what they've done in the past. That was, you know, for a while, Converse worked, right? Uh, yeah. Chuck Taylor. You've also got brands such as uh, Jack Purcell. You, you, this is a proliferation. Why don't they go out and buy? somebody they decided a couple years ago to double down on the nike brand they, they sold off some of their other brands like they had a hockey band brand called bauer um they had cole Haan actually several years ago that they Correct. sold that off so as a private equity deal yeah and but they're basically saying the nike brands are best brand it's the has most growth potential so we're going to focus on that now you know maybe things could change i mean i haven't heard anything in my reporting or, or you know that this could potentially be happening but the nike brand is not as strong as it was. And that's part of the reason why the stock has been depressed. You know, it was the worst performing stock in the Dow last year, for example. Well, Matt, how much is this the death of athleisure and them suffering from that? Yeah, the death of athleisure. Maybe that's part of it. Um, What death? I'm just saying, we've talked about it. We've heard about it. There's a bubble for sure. Okay, but I I think of, for example, Lululemon. I think of Athleta, the Gap brand. In fact, they're going to be concentrating on that and getting rid of some Gap stores because that's what's selling. Yeah, I mean, people have been speculating about this athleisure trend dying down or, or sort of cooling off. But for sure, that's hurt Nike and, you know, Under Armour too, that 
more and more brands, non-athletic brands, are making athletic gear. So that's definitely a problem. Um, but, you know, I mean, Nike, Nike's big issue is that, like I was saying before, they were the coolest brand in the world forever. And now they've been challenged directly by Adidas on this. And they need to respond. All right, I'm not going to tell people about your collection of Stan Smith uh, sneakers there. <laughs> I just want to point out, maybe everybody's wearing sneakers to work, but nobody in this office right now is wearing sneakers. I just want to point that out. But go on. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> All right. Our sartorial guide right there, Lisa Bromwitz. All right, thanks very much. Matt Townsend, he's our global business reporter for Bloomberg News, talking about Nike. The share is uh, down about 2% right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.